0: Welcome to Truth Matters Church, contending for the faith, one verse at a time. Today we continue with part two of our look at Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum, where we see his warning to repent from the worship of idols and the promise of hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. We encourage you to download the PDF handout attached to this message on Sermon Audio. Here is Pastor Alex. Pastor Alex.
1: We are continuing our study in our series of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We are in the third letter of the seven churches, and that is to the church in Pergamum. And this is part two of our message titled, Where Satan Dwells. We've picked up in verse 12. We last left off in verse 13. So what we're going to do is we're going to just read the text. It's what 6 verses. And then we will pick up in verse 14 so that we can get to the end of this letter. And in our first part of our study, we pretty much did a lot of the lay, we laid a lot of the groundwork in terms of the historical setting. As we've done all the time, or or we've made a habit of us doing, we first always look to Scripture to inform us to get as much information as we can, Um, in this case concerning the city of Pergamum. And then once we've looked at Scripture, then we go outside to history, and we've got a lot of insights into the influences that this region has been exposed to and still is in the middle of. Um, through uh, at the time of the writing of this text and after looking at history we did pretty much kind of leave it where when we're studying the letters to the seven churches um, something to just kind of keep in mind to keep it simple there's a lot of activities going on so if you can imagine if you were living at that time there were temples everywhere there were shrines everywhere there was temple prostitutes, as we can, as we'll find as we continue to learn. There's going to be self-proclaimed prophets, self-proclaimed prophetess. and this has all been going on at this time. So, as you can imagine, you know, living as a believer, especially at this time. Granted, Christianity is fairly new. By the time we get here, it's been only sixty years young or so we're 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 at about 95 96 AD by the time this letter's written and if Christ you know died rose and ascended on AD 30 we're looking at about 65 66 years so Christianity is still fairly new and as we know uh, when studying just the new testament uh, the reason why Christianity spread it began in Jerusalem but it was at the call of the Apostle Paul. And it was Paul going through all of these, you know, his various missionary journeys and bringing the gospel that Christianity started to spread outside of Jerusalem. But even at that time, we're talking about first century, you know, if you received the gospel, and, you know, unfortunately, they didn't have the Bible all collected nicely (laughs) like we do today. You know, the canon wasn't compiled yet, um, so they relied on the letters being circulated amongst the churches there. So, you know, if a letter was written to Ephesus, you know, Ephesus you know, would share it with another church saying, here's what Paul wrote instructing us and vice versa. So back in that time, Scripture was just being shared. So as you can imagine, being a believer back that first century, you couldn't listen an audio you know, you couldn't, you know, it's really hard. You can hear things, but you know what? You can also forget things, and you need to be reminded. So when we start to look at kind of um, the setting of these seven churches, and as, we, as we've learned, you know, Jesus is looking across the, the seven churches, and he is evaluating them. And in that evaluation, he comes up with an assessment and Depending on who it is, you might get commendation. You, you might get condemnation. You might get a little bit of both, or you might get no condemnation, no commendation, only condemnation. So something to kind of keep in mind is because, at, you know, just practically speaking, you can only hear and be taught the Scripture when you meet in the homes of whoever is hosting, you know, church. You, it would be relied upon, you know, being shared the scripture and the word so that you can learn about the faith that you have received. But because of, you know, just that, at that time and the activity that's going on, um, as you can imagine, uh, there is this, you're, you're vulnerable too to being kind of pulled away into the activities going on and start compromising your faith. Um, And we will see that, you know, that's kind of a a consistent theme throughout, you know, some of these letters to these churches. And, you know, Jesus is is pretty much letting them know that he knows their situation. And on top of that, you know, if there are some of them that are kind of slipping and compromising in terms of, you know, their sin and their, their forms of worship you know, Jesus had some very strong exhortations to warn against that. Uh, and that's what we find here in Pergamum. And as we've, you know, I guess a good, a good way to kind of capture at least the, the first part of our study into this letter, you know, we talked a lot about Satan's throne is, um, you know, Satan had a throne at that time. Uh, but what's interesting is, at least from what I couldn't, I couldn't find from history or, or from the resources that had been exposed, there wasn't an actual physical throne. So I'm leaving open the possibility that that was prophecy. And that being said, as I just kind of recently went through Revelation, just more recently again, when we get towards, you know, the end of time, when the Antichrist and the, the false prophet— are on the scene and when the the judgment the, the bowl judgments are you know finally poured out and this is right around the time after the mark of the beast then it says one of the bowls was poured on the throne so there was an actual throne so whoever is going to be the antichrist at the end of human history will have a physical throne so i think that this letter to pergamum could very well also be prophecy of you can even say satan incarnate you know he's going to be definitely satan possessed and he will be the most evil ruler of all time and we've kind of um we've kind of left it there Um, but what we'll do is we will pick up now with our scripture reading we'll just read it again it's it's fairly short but we will pick up in verse 14 because we covered through verse 13. So let's read this letter once again to Pergamum. And I'm reading from the NAS. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So a fairly short, concise, and to-the-point letter um, that Jesus wrote here, or that John wrote the words of Jesus here. But what we'll do is we will pick it up in verse... Fourteen, um, Jesus says there. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Uh, before we begin expositing this verse, and it's, this is a good practice, Jesus is referencing. An account that's recorded for us in the Old Testament. And we have two figures, and some of that may be familiar to us, and that is Balaam and Balak. So, what we'll do as is, is part of our just being diligent students of the word is whenever, whether it's Jesus or the author, is referencing something in the, you know, in elsewhere in Scripture, whether it's the Old Testament or New, let's at least have some understanding on what the original account was, and then we bring it back and saying, okay, he brought that example, well, what was, what, what, who were they, what did they do, and then why did, now why is he connecting it here to the believers in Pergamum? So Jesus, at this point, he just commended them for not denying his name, despite the intense persecution. And we talked about Antipas, and at least from what you know, a lot of these Orthodox church uh, writings teach us, and you know, we've learned that he was one of the early martyrs, one of the early heroes of the faith, being discipled by the Apostle John, and that you know, ultimately he ended up being burned for being a preacher of the gospel. Well, after just commending them for not denying his, his name, despite that persecution, Jesus, at this point in the letter, he says, well, I have a few things against you. Some held to the teaching of Balaam and Balak. And the account of Balaam and Balak, it's recorded for us in Numbers. How many of us love Numbers? Numbers. That's when we that's that's the time when you're like I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to go from cover to cover. Genesis, oh interesting. Exodus, oh yeah, it's pretty interesting. Leviticus, oh, numbers, oh, you just doze off. Well, this is that point where we have uh, when we get to numbers, we get the account of Balaam and Balak. And this account was if you're wondering kind of, you know, where we are, when were they introduced in scripture? do you remember the bronze serpent account? And I I touched upon this, uh, you know, a little briefly uh, last time, where when God, through Moses, was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, ultimately, you know, taking them to the promised land, they grumbled against God and against Moses, and they longed to go back to Egypt. So that got got angry, and he ended up saying, you know sending the fiery snakes to to bite them they were obviously venomous, and many of them started to die and that 's where we get the account where when they repented, then you know uh, Moses was instructed to make a bronze serpent, and then whoever looked at that, even though they were, get, they were getting bit would live so it was after that account when we start to get introduced to Balaam and balak so here 's Here's the original account, and this is just really a consolidated, because it it spanned over several chapters, but here's just a brief overview. Balak, he was the king of Moab, and Balaam at the time was a pagan prophet. So here's what happened. uh, Balak was hearing of Israel and their kind of conquest, and the rumors of them and God being their God and just them... How numerous they were, and how how much of a force they were, he started to get worried because they're now a neighboring they're they're, uh, they're, uh, at the neighboring city or town. They're close, so Balak is threatened by Israel. So what he did was he's like, okay, well, whatever Balaam says, because Balaam was the pagan prophet that was known to him, whatever Balaam. You know, curses or, or blesses, that's what's going to happen. So Balak said, okay, he sent his entourage to Balaam, and he wanted to pay him to curse Israel so that they, will, you know, they won't get depossessed and killed and you know, potentially taken over. But what happened was God commanded Balaam not to curse, to curse Israel. Now, I want to say at, the, you know, at this point, Balaam is a pagan prophet. And God is telling this pagan prophet, do not curse Israel. And of course, Balaam can't do anything that the Lord tells him not to do. So Balak made several attempts to pay Balaam to curse Israel, offering him pretty much whatever he wanted. And Balak says, I can't go against, I, I can't go against what the Lord has commanded me. But after several attempts, God said, you know what, Balaam, you can go back, go back, you know, with the entourage and go back to Balak. And it was when Balaam was given permission to go back to Moab with Balak's company, then we get the account of Balaam and the donkey. How many of us are familiar with Balaam's donkey? I'm telling you, when you read the Old Testament, I'm I'm saying, you know, it sounds fiction, but we know the word of God is not fiction. And what we've kind of gleaned from that brief account, God spoke through a donkey. Think about it. He spoke through a donkey. No, literally a donkey. And another thing that we kind of can glean from there is the donkey saw the angel of the Lord before Balaam saw the angel of the Lord. And if you recall the account that when a donkey would see the angel with the sword drawn, the donkey is trying to go the other way. And then that frustrated Balaam, and Balaam ends up beating it. But ultimately, after that kind of ordeal, then Balaam's eyes were open, and he saw the angel with a drawn sword in hand. And I can say when I read accounts like this, you know you know my mind gets triggered to other things. Well, first of all, at the fall, you know, Satan entered a serpent and spoke through the serpent. So when you study the Bible, don't explain it away when he says the serpent, yeah, it's descriptive of Satan's character, but he literally entered a serpent and spoke to Eve. And that's not far-fetched from saying, okay, here a donkey was talking to Balaam. And, um, you know, another thing too, and my mind just starts to go, have you ever wondered um, on the account of Daniel in the lion's den, where God shut their mouths that Daniel wasn't eaten? Well, it's not too far-fetched that those lions saw the angel. And the angel, you know, just like we do with, uh, with, with dogs, and you, and you, you stay, sit, know that the lions didn't attack Daniel. I'm just saying that's consistent. Well, anyways, Balaam, he saw the angel with a, saw, a drawn sword in hand, but Balaam's life was spared, but Balaam was given the command You can only speak the words given by God. So when Balak and Balaam, they finally got together, they proceeded to set up altars and offer up sacrifices. So as they're setting up altars and offering up sacrifices, instead of cursing Israel, Balaam blesses Israel. And this got Balak upset. Like, I'm I'm trying to hire you and pay you to curse them, and yet you're continuing to bless them. And just so you know, this happened three times. And this is where you have three oracles of Balaam. And just a little side note here, but when I read these accounts, Balaam was a pagan prophet. But by the time, the third time, when he gave an oracle, it says he realized that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. So what Balaam used to do as part of his pagan worship was divination. So by the time we get to the third time, the third oracle of Balaam, he no longer did divination because he saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. So that is to say, if you were to ask me, do I think Balaam was saved? I'd say, yes, he was redeemed. Not right away, but by the time he got to that third oracle and he saw what pleased God, that he, didn't, he, he did not resort, re, uh, resort to his normal practice of omens and divination. Anyhow, that's just a brief summary of the account of Balaam and Balak. And now what, what happens is that's going to lead us to Israel's sin because Jesus is referencing their teaching and their sin. And we're getting to that now um, at this point in Numbers, and that's in Numbers 25. And some of you might have in your study Bible the sin of Peor account in, in the header. So in a nutshell, Israel encamped you can see at the neighboring city or country by, the, by Moab, the Moabites. What happened was when they were kind of neighboring nations, Israel played harlot and joined in with the Moabites in Baal worship. So they, they were partners with the Moabites to offer up sacrifices to Baal. How do you think God felt about that? He was angry against Israel man just before that he was angry before that when they were grumbling against God and against Moses but here they are after that sparing them with the bronze serpent account here they are angering God again so you know what God did this time when he got upset he gave the instruction to Moses he says take all the leaders and kill them so when they were, it's kind of like when you go back to um, Aaron and made the golden calf and Moses returned and there was a great slaughter and Moses kind of asked them to pick a side. Well, it's kind of similar to that in that when they engaged and became a harlot and joined the Moabites in worship, that Moses were to take all the leaders and execute them. So those who engage in the worship of Baal, they were slain in broad daylight that day. And the scripture tells us 24,000 Israelites were killed that day. 24,000. It was a sad day in terms of loss for the people of Israel. Now back to verse 14. That's the account in a nutshell. Now let's go back to verse 14. So Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So although the believers in Pergamum, even though they were faithful in the face of severe persecution in the days of Antipas, some of them held to the teachings of Balaam and Balak. Now catch this. At the time this letter is written, Baal worship didn't go away. Some kept to their teaching. There was a bunch of different types of worship there. There was temples, shrines. There was a lot of different teachings out there, a lot of different religions, a lot of different idol worship. And if you thought Baal went away by the time he got to the first century, think again. Because there were some who held to the teaching of Balaam. And who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sins, before the sons of Israel? And if you are wondering what was Baal worship in a nutshell, well, it was burnt offerings, eating of the sacrifice, and then engaging in acts of immorality. And as we will talk about Baal worship kind of throughout these letters, Baal worship was associated with the Asherah, and we'll talk about a little bit about that later. But um, one of the elements of this worship was the burning of children in sacrifice. Could you imagine just living in a time where there's an altar to Baal and what you bring for the offering was your baby and you burn your baby in an offering of worship to Baal? That's what encompassed Baal worship, which is why God gave a strong warning, do not go after foreign God's. And I'm going to talk about a little bit of, a, this is kind of a little bit of a difficult subject because, you know, I know God in the Old Testament, we might, we might find him a little aggressive because how can a loving God lead his people through these foreign countries and annihilate them? In some cases, women, children too. And in some cases, God spares some of them. When you kind of just keep in perspective that this is a culture rooted in idol worship to that extent. Could you imagine the, you know, children are a gift and you were to take that gift and offer it to a demon and you're so entrenched in that that God says, you know what, Israel, go ahead and take them out as you make your way to the promised land. I know it's very difficult, but when you think about a godless and an evil and perverse generation engaged in such idol worship to that extent, I think the holiness of God shows itself in the Old Testament. And we also know what's consistent with God's character is if there's any there who fear God, you think he's going to wipe you out? God forbid that he sweeps away the righteous as the unrighteous. But if God wipes out a whole town, just like he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, remember the, the dialogue? You know, what if there was 50, 40, 30, 20, where they went down to 10? He said he'll spare the city if there was that much. There wasn't that much, so he burned it. So when God, through these conquests through the people of Israel, God being consistent with how he is and how he he operates, that there's no one righteous. So I know some of us might find that hard to accept, but let's just say if there was a thousand people and a thousand God-haters and engage in such worship and God instructs a people to wipe them out, is there any unrighteousness with God? Of course not. But if there is any among them that fear him, we know he would he would even spare the city on behalf of that one. Did not God spare the world on behalf of Noah? But he wiped everyone else out? So God is consistent. So I'm just saying that because I know that these are some kind of difficult topics and subjects when it comes to the subject of God. But so not only were there some there that held to the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, there were some among them who held to other teachings in verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way hold the te- te- teaching of the Nicolaitans. And I touched a little bit about the Nicolaitans when we looked at the letter to Ephesus. And this is what we learned when we're like, what's the teaching of the Nicolaitans? Well, scripture didn't give us much to work with, so we kind of struck out there. But there is a strong connection or correlation between the teaching of Balaam and Balak. So the fact that they're associated and are close in connection here in this letter to Pergamum, this is what we deduce, that whatever the teaching of the Nicolaitans, they held similar beliefs. So they might not say, hey, I I hold to the teaching of Balaam and Balak, but I hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But yet fundamentally, at its root, they held to similar beliefs. And this is why, you know, I think without historical backgrounds, we are going to be very short-sighted in our study of Scripture. Because we learn and are continuing to learn that, at, uh, that this part of the world was entrenched in the worship of many different kinds of deities, philosophies, and idol worship over the different epochs of time. So when we were looking at Pergamum and how did Pergamum come to be and what does history have to tell us, we know that throughout you know, the hundreds of years and the different you know, kingdoms that you know, came to power and ultimately um, here at this point being under the power of Rome, how much it has been exposed and entrenched in the worship of many kinds of deities, philosophies, and idol worship. So there was a plethora of religions and beliefs and as I mentioned, temple shrines too. So there was the Olympian gods and goddesses. Some of us you know, are, are you know, getting more familiar with that. There was a deification of kings and emperors. And as we were learning here in this letter, there was still a remnant of Baal worship, teaching of Balak and Balaam. And there was also the Nicolaitans. So what we learned was Ephesus hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which was part of their commendation. But in Pergamum, Some embraced the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So the believers in Pergamum, they were living in this kind of world and their faith was challenged and tested and it was even contested from all different angles. And here's something I want to say. Even though Jesus died for their sins, did you know he did not give them a free pass? Now this is very instructive for us. He says in verse 16, Therefore repent. He didn't say, but I died for all your sins, I understand, I got, I got you covered. He says, therefore repent, or else, and we've talked about this, or else is a very, very direct exhortation. And I've used the example, when we, you know, for a parent to a kid, do this or else, or if you want to threaten someone, if you don't do this, there is a consequence. And this is it, this is the consequence if they don't repent. He goes, I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So verse 16, he says, therefore repent. Repentance is not a suggestion, it's a command. Jesus is not asking for them to consider to repent. He is commanding them to repent. And here's, you know, as we've, you know, we're going through this, this letter, even though we're sticking to it in its original context, it is very instructive for the believers that follow to this day. You know, Christianity, if you were to ask me, and I think many of you may agree, and the gospel as we know it today, you know it's so watered down that the command for continued repentance is neglected or not even taught at all. Just believe in Jesus. That's enough. Now, believing in Jesus is enough for salvation. I'm not not saying we're not saved by any works or performance. But the gospel... And its presentation is so one-sided and so watered down that this command for continual repentance is overlooked and neglected. So just because we're a Christian and Jesus died for all our sins, the believers in Pergamum didn't get a free pass. It, 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 we understand, like, yeah, you're weak, you're in the flesh, and you have all this going on around you. You know, I died for that. He, he didn't give them a free pass. He commanded them to repent and this is consistent with the apostle paul you know when paul in his marvelous book the book of romans and he touches on this truth in reality that we can't outsin god's grace so if you were to sin this much god's grace is this much if you sin this much god's grace is this much and you go all the way up to the sky into the heavens you cannot outsin god's grace so Paul says, along that line of thinking, should I go on singing, uh, sinning so that God's grace might abound? He goes, by no means. He goes, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Jesus saying the same thing here. Yeah, my grace is sufficient. I died for all your sins. That doesn't give you or any believers thereafter a free pass to make excuses for engaging in acts of immorality, in idol worship, in disregard to our God and Savior. So the believers in Pergamum, who held to the teachings of Balak, Balaam, the Nicolaitans, they were commanded to repent or else he says this. He says, I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I am coming to you quickly. We'll look at that. He goes, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth and we will look at that. I'm telling you, I'm so thankful for our rules of engagement. Because when it says, I'm coming to you quickly, if we don't have any rules or principles to abide by, what are we going to do? Well, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? So we're, we've been following these disciplines of, for one, to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Don't take it out of context. Don't over-spiritualize the text. Jesus says, I am. Who's I am? Who's speaking? Jesus. No. Who is coming? Jesus himself is coming coming is erkomai. jesus is going to come and pay a visit you're like oh well jesus didn't really come because something else came for him no he says i am coming to you quickly who's you i am coming to you who's you see if we don't have any rules of engagement or principles you is it's everybody you is you first let's stick to it in its original context jesus saying i am coming to you Believers in Pergamum, quickly. It's the believers in Pergamum who will not repent and forsake the teachings of Balaam, Balak, Baal, and the Nicolaitans. Quickly, it's touch you. Soon, afterward. And he says, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I will make war against them. Who's them? Yeah, the Israelites. Who will not forsake the teaching of Balaam, Balak, and the Nicolaitans. What did God do to to the Israelites back then who engaged in Baal worship? 24,000 dead. You think he's going to spare them? No. So them are those in Pergamum, Jews included, who refused to repent. And he says, with the sword of my mouth. Jesus was speaking and pronouncing judgment. So here's where it, it starts to get. We're going to talk about an immediate application but we're also going to talk a little bit about its prophetic implications too. And this is why it does get, it gets a little difficult. Because he says, with the sword of my mouth. Here's the truth in context. When we use our ROEs, the scripture means what it says. So if the believers in Pergamum, that first century who held to the teachings of Balaam, Balak, Baal, the Nicolaitans, do not repent, Jesus himself, will pay a visit in judgment very soon. And I mentioned this. God did this to the Israelites when they sinned in Peor. 24,000 died that day. Jesus himself will do this to the unrepentant in Pergamum. And he will speak judgment upon them and slay them with the sword of his mouth. So here, here's where it gets a little confusing. So kind of stay with me. So the believers in Pergamum, if they don't repent, they're going to get killed. Now, did Jesus kill them because he made a bodily return and killed them? Not necessarily. But by the sword of his mouth, he gives the command for them to be killed. But here's where it, it goes beyond them to the end. And this is why I'm kind of glad we went to the end. Do you remember at the seventh trumpet? Who's going to rise? All who were in the tomb. All whoever lived and died from the time of Adam to the blowing of that seventh trumpet will rise some to everlasting life and some to everlasting destruction so here's where it goes okay how this played out in history is if they didn't repent they were killed and that was at the command the sword of his mouth but when he says i'm coming to you quickly so let's just say they were killed okay so they died let's just say 100 bc i mean 100 ad let's just say they died 100 ad they're dead right they didn't repent they're in hell right Let's just say 2030, I'm just, you know, don't don't take that as gospel. The seventh trumpet is blown. Jesus is coming with the clouds, with power and great glory. He came quickly, because I'm coming to you quickly, and I will slay you. So they will be raised up in that judgment, the resurrection of judgment, and they will be killed quickly. Are you following me? So that's why when we study Revelation, first, don't go there yet understand it in its context, and then when we start to unpack how things are going to unfold, you will see when he says, I am coming to you quickly at that resurrection, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Let it be so. Amen. The Jews that killed our Lord and you know, had him killed at the hands of Pilate, they will be part of that resurrection with Pergamum and the others and all who have lived and died up to that point. And here's Jesus coming in the power, coming in the clouds with power and great glory. That's pretty quick, from because once you die, as far as time, and now you're raised to be judged again and to experience God's wrath. That's pretty darn quick. Um, you know, I don't know if, if you know when some of you might have you know pondered this question. So if eternity, you know, when, you know we live in a a, a time bound. Creation. I mean, everything you know has a beginning and an end, right? We can't stop time. You know, time just continues to progress. But in the lens of eternity, there's really it's eternal. So, like some, you know, I remember some of these questions that would you know kind of be brought and um, and asked, you know, to ponder about. So, if someone died in let's say 100 A.D. and someone dies right now, let's say in 2022, who got to heaven first? Because from an eternal perspective, there's really no time at least as we know it today. So then I know that that's kind of probably even beyond us. But I do want to suggest there is some, a measure of time in the new heavens and a new earth because the, the trees will bear fruit in its season. So there will definitely be seasons. But, um, but anyhow, Jesus says, I am coming to you quickly. So if the believers in Pergamum don't repent, Jesus will give the command and they will be killed. And not only will they be killed, but Jesus himself will slay them at the blowing of that seventh trumpet. Pretty, pretty intense. So here's the universal truth that's beyond Pergamum. Those entrenched in idol worship, who refuse to repent and turn to the living and true God, will be slain by the Lord Jesus and by the sword of his mouth. Did you get that? Go back from Adam and through all of the pagan and idolatrous Generations that followed, entrenched in idol worship. Anyone who refuses to turn to the true and living God, the God of Israel, Jesus is coming to them quickly too. And they will be slain by the Lord Jesus himself. I'm telling you, this is why when we start getting into the imagery of Christ with his robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. Jesus is a warrior who will defeat his enemies, and slay them. He can command his angels to do it. I kind of like the leaders that kind of go out with you in battle. Jesus is one of those guys. Like I said before, Jesus is no joke. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So verse 17 begins with, he who has an ear. So all of these seven letters have a consistent theme. He starts off with saying he knows what they're going through and then he goes and gives his evaluation and assessment. But he ends the letters in this way, he who has an ear. And I mentioned this before, this echoes Isaiah's warning and call to repentance. So when it says he who has an ear, it's not just another fancy phrase. That too is a command to hear and heed to the word of God or else. So all who hear the proclamation of the gospel are to adhere to it or else. Now, I know we're not taught to teach the gospel that way in our apologetics, but there is an or else. We share the good news, but if you don't accept this, this is the bad news. The bad news is your current situation. It doesn't change. You're still in your sin And if you don't turn to Christ, you will face him in judgment. To those who overcome, Jesus promises them hidden manna and a white stone. So let's talk about that. Have you ever thought about when you've maybe read this portion? What's hidden manna? And what white stone? What is he talking about? And well, let's look at hidden manna first. And we're all familiar with the manna account in the Old Testament. So after God, through Moses, led the people out of bondage and was leading them through the wilderness to the promised land, God rained down manna from heaven to feed them. And and he also provided meat. And the Old Testament tells us that manna was described as a white coriander seed. So if you're wondering, what did manna taste like? Tasted like wafers with honey. Well, that's the manna in the Old Testament. And we know that God fed that for 40 years. I was like, I'm getting my forties. I'm, I'm like, man, is it 40 days? It's 40 years in the wilderness. So when we look at manna, or he says hidden manna, first let's find out what does the scripture tell us about manna? And we talked about that at least from the Old Testament, and that's manna in the Old Testament. But Jesus says hidden manna, and he says it here in this letter to the, in the New Testament. So what is Jesus mean when he also goes on to say that he will give them not only the hidden manna but a white stone and a new name written on it which no one knows except him who receives it and as far as white stone goes you know if i've tried to look up white stone throughout the scripture it's not mentioned in the old testament it's only one time and it's here in the new testament in this letter so what was jesus communicating by these two things now uh, I'm telling you, when you, and you read most commentaries out there, we're like, oh, you know, hidden manna and white stone? They'll go straight to spiritualizing it. They'll just say, oh, it, it, it's symbolism. It means keeping oneself pure from an adulterous and perverse generation or some variation of this. So they're basically spiritualizing the text with the spiritual truth. They'll say, if you, so if you were to read most commentaries, what, what is hidden manna and what is white stone? Oh, it just means living a holy life and being pure. As you know, that doesn't sit well uh, with me personally because th- this, again, goes against our rules of engagement where we end up over-spiritualizing the text and we end up with speculation and man's idea. First, let's go to the Scripture, see what it tells us, and if there any historical backgrounds that can help us understand it. So as we customarily do, we're going to look to the Scriptures first, then historical context. So I mentioned the manna raining down from heaven that account in the Old Testament where God fed his people for 40 years in the wilderness. But does Scripture tell us anything else about manna? Oh, of course he does. Um, After Israel named it manna in Exodus 16, they were commanded to fill a jar with it before the Lord throughout their generations. So they were given that command or instruction. So Aaron placed some of the manna, and he placed it before the Ark of the Testimony. And they ate manna for those 40 years until they arrived to the promised land. But Hebrews 9 tells us a little bit more about manna because we're we're trying to understand what's this hidden manna? What is that? What's the white stone? What is that? First, let's exhaust the scripture of manna. And then we'll see if we need to go to historical context and what was Jesus communicating by using these two things. So in Hebrews 9, it gives us more details about this manna. And it says that that manna was in in a golden jar and it was placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant along with Aaron's rod that budded and along with the tablets or the Ten Commandments. So within the Ark of the Covenant, you had a golden jar with manna, you've had Aaron's rod, and you had the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments. So now, you take that with one of Jesus' most prolific claims in John 6 that he is the true living bread you can even say he is the true manna that came down from heaven which man may eat of and not die so here's what we get what's the hidden manna the manna account in scripture points to Jesus coming to die for us and to give us life so shouldn't be news to us Jesus is the hidden manna from that standpoint but i do want to mention this that this too can be prophecy what i mean is this and you know, um, we're going to get into a little bit of, of, of the account of Elijah and the widow when there was the famine, when there was the three and a three-and-a-half-year drought, and how God supernaturally, you know, through the, the widow woman, remember her jars never ended. Could you imagine, like, going to your cupboard? Let's just say you even had a bowl of cereal, and you, it would never end. That happened. And then when you think about, wait, how about the miracles of Jesus? The, the, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 7,000 and how he multiplied bread. What's that all about? So when he says the hidden manna, yes, from, a, from the scriptural standpoint, Jesus is the true living bread, the true manna that came down from heaven, which man may eat of and not die. But also when he says, I'll give you some of the hidden manna, I believe it could also be prophecy that applies to the 144,000 and the elect who will be supernaturally preserved during the famine and the end times. Did you get that? What I mean is this, there was a famine in the land going back to that Elijah account. It didn't rain for three and a half years, and yet God preserved them, you know, Elijah and the widow that he was staying with. And then we have the miracles, as I mentioned. If there is a famine, I know some of us are like, well, what are we going to eat? What are we going to do? Jesus has some hidden manna. He will take care of you. You're like, what? Oh, well, I just read that in the Bible. That's not true for me. It could be. So I believe that the hidden manna is also instructive to those who will need to be supernaturally preserved in the end times. So now let's also look at white stone. It's only used here in this letter to Pergamum. What does white stone mean? Let's look at the Greek. White stone is leukos cephas. Not cephas like Peter. I might even be saying it wrong. Cephas. Which means a bright white smooth stone. Now, there's something interesting about Cephas, and it's only used one other time in the the New Testament in Acts. So, okay, so we talked about the hidden manna, and I told you it's pointing to Christ, but it's also, I believe, a prophecy that there's going to be those who are going to be given an actual hidden manna, just as God preserved the people of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. In the end times, there will be some hidden manna that will be given supernaturally. I I don't know how that's going to work out, but these were written as examples for us so that those who were, you know, it applies to at that time can look at the Scripture and believe, and God will take care of you. But now we're looking at what's white stone. And yeah, it's, it's literally a white smooth stone, but what does it mean? And we're going to look at the only other time it was used in the New Testament, and it was in Acts. So let's, let's look at that account. And we're going to pick it up here. You know, Paul appealed to Caesar being falsely accused by the Jews and Paul was brought before Agrippa to make his defense and he was permitted to make his defense. So we'll pick it up in Acts 26 verse 2. He's before Agrippa now making his defense and he was given permission to. In regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to take my defense before you today especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. So then all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion." And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered credible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He's giving his testimony here and this is just what i did in jerusalem not only did i lock up many of the saints in prison having received authority from the chief priest but also they were being put to death i cast my vote my cephas against them and i punished them Often in all the synagogues I tried to force them to blaspheme and being ferociously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Okay, so here's what's interesting. Cephas in ancient times were white stones used to cast a vote against the accused. So could you imagine when, let's say the account of Stephen, when he was stoned, how do you cast your vote that if someone, you know, let's say someone like Stephen were to, be st- were to be stoned to death, those who had the authority would be given a stone and you would cast it in favor or in not. So here's, let's pull this together, okay? Because Jesus is promising the believers in Pergamum that if they are faithful and for those who weren't and repent, he promises to give them some of the hidden manna and he says he promises to give them a white stone with a name written on it, which no one knows but him himself. So he's promising the believers there, if they remain faithful, Jesus is promising to give them the true hidden manna and the true white stone with their name inscribed in it. In other words, Jesus is promising that if they obey and remain faithful, they will be rewarded And receive the gift of eternal life. And Jesus will not come with the sword of his mouth, but instead with the white stone, with his name on it as a personal invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, let me say this. So, remember that, remember the um, going back when he says, I am coming to you quickly in judgment. Remember that the seventh trumpet is blown. And if, if you are part of the resurrection of the damned, he is coming with the clouds of power and great glory and you are about to be part of the winepress of the fury of God. And that's pretty quick. Well, for those who are part of the resurrection to, right, you know, to eternal life, he's not coming with the sword of his mouth. He's not going to slay you, and you're not going to be under the wrath of God in the fury of his winepress. And if needed, even up to that point, if he needed to give you some of the hidden manna, but Jesus is not coming to give you, bring you judgment. He is coming to give you a white stone with your name on it. He is casting his vote, if you will, saying, come, you who are faithful. He is inviting you. Hey, I'm here. The groom has come. Come join me in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So for the believers in Pergamum, they're going to experience that, but it's not just limited to them. It's going to apply to those who are faithful, even beyond them. So what we can glean from this truth. This white stone is a promise. Uh, I'll say this, whatever your name is here, whatever your earthly parents or whoever guardian, whoever named you, don't get attached to it. (laughs) Jesus is going to give you a new name. You're like, well, did we get other glimpses of that in scripture oh yeah remember god renamed abram to abraham sarai to sarah he renamed jacob to israel i wonder what he's going to name me what is he going to name you well you'll know when you get that white stone with your name on it so from an historical context um, i want to mention this now i'm only i mean I'm only as good as the, the resources that I was exposed to and, and the, you know, coming across. But if someone were to come to me and say, you know, Alex, there was actually some more historical context here about hidden manna that would have been more relevant to the first century hearers at that time, or there was a white stone, you know, somehow in that society, there was, you know, white stone had some other implications. If you were to bring that to me, I'd be like, amen. That doesn't take away from the truth we just talked about, but that'll also bring some richness from the historical context standpoint. So, of course, if someone's going to come to me and bring me some of those things that I'm short-sighted on, amen. As long as you don't make Scripture fit into history, you look at history through the lens of Scripture. As long as we stay like that, I'm all ears. But don't try to make historical events fit the Bible rather try to understand the bible in its historical context and setting and look at how the world is unfolding through the lens of scripture and if you're able to if there are some clear ones like when you get to the four beasts you know the the first three kingdoms are pretty straightforward because it gave us the 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 interpretation of the prophecy and then we have world history to verify these world powers that's a little different you know, you know, but we're looking at through the lens of scripture, and we know that these historical events happened. But there are so many events that has happened since the beginning of time. You know, you know, unless the scripture, you know, you look at it through the lens of scripture, you know, we can't always be dogmatic about well, this event means this, or this is exactly what the scripture was talking about. So, um, as long as we're trying to understand the scripture in its historical context and looking at it through the lens of scripture. And, you, and someone wants to bring me some of that historical background that had relevance to the hearers, I am all ears. So that, ladies and gentlemen, takes us to the end of this letter to Pergamum. Next on
0: deck, Thyatira. Thanks so much for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. As we continue to study Revelation verse by verse using our rules of engagement, we find that Scripture is just incredibly rich and relevant to believers throughout all time. And as Pastor Alex mentioned, next time we're going to look at the letter to the church in Thyatira. If you've missed any part of our study, you can find all of them at our website, truthmatterschurch.org. Or simply search for Truth Matters Church on Sermon Audio. And consider joining us for our study in person or via Zoom every Friday night. You can find out more again at our website, truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.